does booking your travels online make you a little nervous? And then when we make mistakes, there's usually no way of undoing the mistakes because the purchase is non-refundable. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, consumer advocate Christopher Elliott shares tips on how we can all be smarter travelers. Patricia Schultz reveals why she wrote a follow-up to her popular Thousand Places to See Before You Die that only covers sites in the United States and Canada. There is no other continent like North America, I think, that offers so very much and so many varied things from natural beauty to man-made beauty. And if you want the benefits of a Mediterranean diet, there's one thing you should never run out of. I have a family of three, and I need about five liters of olive oil per month. Learn how to eat like the Greeks at home and dining out with friends. So you order a variety and you order it to share. It goes in the middle of the table. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Patricia Schultz gets us ready to celebrate Canada's sesquicentennial. It's 150 years old and plan a road trip across the United States. And Christopher Elliott helps us overcome common pitfalls he encounters as a consumer travel advocate so that we can all be smarter travelers. That's coming up in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. If you've resolved to improve what you eat, you've probably heard a lot about the benefits of a Mediterranean-style diet. Travelers to Greece rave about how good the food is and how healthy it is. Here to help unlock the magic of authentic Greek food are Greek tour guides Anastasia Gaitanu, Ioana Papakosta, and David Willett, who also contributes to the latest Rick Steves Greece guidebook. Ioana, what should a traveler know ahead of time about what they're going to eat in Greece? Well, first of all, he has to have in mind that food in Greece is simple. You start with this beautiful environment and this very rich soil that blesses us with amazing and taste ingredients and you will find out that most of our dishes are simple, but so delicious. Most of them are an experience. So, Anastasia, when you think of your favorite Greek dishes, uh, what ingredient do you have a particular appreciation for? Oh, that is so difficult. <laughs> Everything's my favorite, but I cannot cook without olive oil. Olive oil. Mm. Olive oil, absolutely. I have a family of three, and I need about five liters of olive oil per month. Five liters a month, Five so that's liters. more than a gallon of olive oil a month you use. Now, would this be extra virgin Italian olive oil? Mm. This will be <laughs> definitely virgin oil, if I can extra, but Greek. Greek. We have a lot of olive oil. We have a lot, about 400,000 to 500,000 tons mm. per year, depending on the weather mainly. And about 70% of that is virgin olive oil. What is virgin olive oil? What does that mean? Virgin olive oil is the oil that we get from the first pressing, and it has very low acidity levels. Ah. Mainly the quality of the olive oil is determined by its taste and by its acidity level, mainly. So, so when, a, when somebody sits down in a taverna and has a good Greek salad, what is the dressing for the salad? Well, if it would be really Greek salad, it would be olive oil and salt. That would, that be, would it. be it. Not ranch, yeah. not blue cheese, no, none of that. No, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and a Greek salad would be tomatoes, hopefully Greek tomatoes. If you try a Greek tomato, you will remember or for the first time realize what a tomato really tastes like. So tomatoes, cucumber, and then it depends. Many use onions, some use peppers, olives, definitely, and to characterize something as a Greek salad or choriatiki, that's the village salad, mm -hmm. then you have to have a big 
chunk of feta cheese on oh, top. Oh, yeah, a big chunk of feta cheese. David Willett, you wrote the Lonely Planet Guide to Greece. Uh, what sort of a tip would you give to a traveler to uh, get the best value when you're going to spend money in a restaurant? I assess things by eye. Where the, uh, the locals are eating, I go and eat. And often it's very clearly uh, defined. You'll have a restaurant that's completely full on one side and one that's empty on the other. So which one has the good food? Let the people tell you. The locals know. The locals know. So I always uh, trust the locals when seeking advice. Not necessarily your hotel concierge. They often do deals with hotels. Right. I trust my own judgment, and I go out and look. Now, one thing I'm aware of when I'm trying to watch my dollar as I'm traveling is not to over-order. And in Greece, it's a great situation if you're traveling with a, a family or a small group because you can eat family style and have many different options without over-ordering. Talk a little bit about the, the meze style of eating. Well, I think that really when you sit down and order in Greece, you need to think about ordering for the table, not for yourself. So you order a variety and you order it to share. It goes in the middle of the table and you take the food from those plates and put it on your own or you simply eat from those communal plates. All right. Joanna, as a traveler, is there something strange and frightening that I should be aware of ordering just for the experience? What do you find is a, an unusual food that people enjoy when they're traveling around Greece? Snails. You have snails in Greece, <laughs> huh? Yes, yes. But, you know, you don't come across them very often. Mostly no. the locals cook them at home. I don't Octopus, think... maybe that's for, for some travelers. <laughs> if they haven't had octopus before. But still, you have to be open-minded because these are not tastes that are going to shock you. And I find that most of the times people have a problem when they eat fish, fresh fish that the fishermen just brought out early in the morning and you have it grilled and it's delicious. But sometimes people, when they see the whole fish, they... With the head on it. They're afraid, yeah. I suppose the head on it is, is a good thing. You know it's a fresh You fish. know it's fresh looking at its eye, of is course. Is that right? So yes. that's part of the reason to have Before the head on it. Before it's cooked, yeah. All right. Now, there's mm. different kinds of eateries. The taverna, the, the meze place, the place for wuzo. Can you talk about these and, and what you would look for when you're choosing a restaurant? What are the traditional kinds of restaurants? It depends, first of all, how you want to spend your time. If uh -huh. you want to have a nice, long meal... You go to Taverna, usually families go there, but if you have some time to spend with your friends, you would go to a place to eat some mezes and drink some ouzo or chipuro, where you have the drinks come with little side dishes, a variety of delicacies on and them. And that would be a, a, a meza? Meze do polio. A restaurant that specializes in, like, tapas that can yes. be shared. Yeah. All right. It. David Willett, Johanna just mentioned ouzo and chipuro. Ouzo is... An alcohol, preferably a fairly neutral alcohol, made from either sugar cane or figs, something that produces a neutral flavored alcohol, and that is then flavored with anise and uh, other herbs and spices. Uzo. Yes, and this is Uzo. The, And you add water and it becomes cloudy. You add water and it becomes uh, cloudy. Chiporo is a, a, a grape product. Oh, it's, it's a grape, so more like a grappa. It, it is exactly the same as grappa. Grappa, Chikudia, they're all the same product. Eau de Vie ah. in France, they're all produced from the grape trash. Okay. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our guides to eating like the Greeks are Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki, Ioana Papakosta from Patras, and Australian David Willett, a former resident of Napoleon, and he's been showing visitors the high points of Greece for decades. Anastasia, when we go to Greece, olives seem to have a... There's a passion for olives, and I've been with people who... It's a family recipe of how they prepare their olives. Of course, you can't eat an olive off the tree. How do you have to prepare it, and how? what sort of national pride or regional pride or even family pride is there with olives? 
Olives define us, really. You find them almost everywhere in Greece. They do grow almost everywhere. And they're a very good culture because the olive tree. So it needs very little water but a lot of sun. And it can grow even on rocky soil. So we have it everywhere except on the high mountains. And most families that have the luxury of owning a small piece of land have some olive trees. And many produce their own olive oil and they have their own olives. So what we do is we collect them, and then you have to wash them, of course, Mm -hmm. because they have been on the tree for a long time. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. never know. And then you either put them in salt, if you like them salty, and they let them practically cook in the salt. No, just salt. Just salt. Just a big barrel with salt, and you put them in. Mm -hmm. These are the salty ones. But usually what we do is we put them in brine, and we leave them there. We change the salt water many times, and then the last salt water... You define the taste of the olive because you should never eat an olive from the tree. It tastes horrible, mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. So you define the taste by what you put into the salt water, which can be lots of different herbs, uh, lemon, uh, an apple for the acidity, uh, onions, whatever you like. Thank you. Now, I just want to finish by letting each of you talk just a bit about some of the classic dishes. Uh, you want a tzatziki. Oh, my God. This is... What we use instead of Windex <laughs> in everything. So tzatziki is um, basically the most popular dip we have in Greece. So this is a dip for it's your a dip, bread, for your vegetables. A spread on your bread, exactly. It's a side. What's it made out of? Yogurt, mm-hmm. cucumber, garlic, a touch of vinegar, olive oil, salt and pepper. You can get it at any restaurant. It's, it's everywhere. Sometimes people add carrots or dill, but the traditional thing is the basic. David Willett, moussaka. Moussaka. You've asked the wrong person, Rick, because I've got an allergy to red meat. Oh, no. no but well, let's go to Anastasia then, moussaka. May I also add, say that um, traditional is um, something very relevant. It's traditional mainly to those who come to Greece. And this traditional dish is not very old. It basically consists out of meat and um, eggplants. But nowadays, we have layers of potatoes, eggplants, minced meat, and then the newest addition of the 60s and 70s, bechamel sauce on top. Oh, my goodness. So this is a relatively new dish, not with deep tradition. Most of what is considered to be very traditional abroad, not in Greece, is what became very popular through mainly movies and through the time Uh, in which Greece was very popular in the 60s abroad. So that's interesting. This sort of pop culture, immigration patterns and so on can shape our perception of a a traditional cuisine. David Willett, the souflaki pita. Now we're on my territory because it it combines elements that we've already mentioned. Most people in Greece, by the way, they're often surprised when they don't find that they get pita bread with everything because pita bread is really served in the souvlaki shops. Because souvlaki is basically a skewer of meat, but my image of a souvlaki is a souvlaki pita, actually, wrapped in the greasy bun, right? Yes, with uh, tzatziki, with salad, with French fries often too because whatever fits in there gets put in there. And it's a, a meal for... About two years. Sort of a hamburger. It's like the hamburger, yeah. the, the hot meal to mm. go if you're on the run. And I think the defining thing is the quality of the tzatziki in the end, because that really is the is what holds it all together. That's my go-to meal when I'm just wanting a quick lunch is a good souvlaki pita. Well, you know, you only get tzatziki in the south with your souvlaki, mm-hmm. not in the north. Yes. Uh, is that right? So you yeah. won't find the north pita. North is different. Uh, well, may, that's important to remember. If I may add one more thing. When people are asking for pita, uh, usually they ask for lamb. It's not very common in Greece to have lamb in a pita. It's mostly pork or chicken. 
because many also confuse it with the Turkish equivalent. Oh yeah, the doner kebab. Of course, kebab. We, it's many similarities in our mm-hmm. culture. So usually it's lamb, because in a Muslim country you don't eat pork. But ours is mainly pork. Okay, now for dessert, I'll let each of you just share your favorite dessert. Anastasia. Um, before I tell you that, you have to know that Greek desserts are sweet. Yes. Really sweet. That's why the pieces are smaller than the pieces you're used to. My favorite is galaktobureko. That is a kind of pie with filo dough on top and underneath, and it has a thick cream filling, and of course the whole thing is soaked in syrup, and it's to die for. And the name again? Galaktobureko. Try combining it with vanilla ice cream. Ooh. David Willett, how would you cap your meal, sweet or otherwise? I was about to say that I don't have a particularly sweet tooth until Anastasia mentioned Galaktobureko, when everything falls apart. Normally in Greece, what I look forward to is the amazing fruit, how I like to end a meal. Watermelon is, yeah. is, is my favorite. A piece of cold, crisp watermelon is the perfect way to finish a meal. Joanna. Well, what's better than yogurt, honey, and walnuts oh, in Greece? Greek yogurt with Greek honey and walnuts. Ah, on that note, I'll thank all of you for sharing with us the delights of the country you know so well. Thank you, Rick. Thank, thank you. you. Come and taste them. Next, we look at the scams and issues confronting travelers with consumer travel advocate Christopher Elliott. Later in the hour, Patricia Schultz updates us on her thousand favorite places to visit in the U.S. and Canada. We're at 877-333-RICK. It can really help to have someone looking out for your interests when you encounter problems with corporate America. Christopher Elliott investigates the scams and issues that cost travelers money and aggravation in his weekly columns for The Washington Post, USA Today, and The Huffington Post. Chris joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls at 877-333-7425 and to tell us what kinds of issues he's hearing about lately that might impact your travels. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me. What's trendy right now? What kind of complaints are you finding, legitimate complaints that we consumers need to be aware of when we deal with the travel industry. I think a lot of the anger that I get in my advocacy practice is aimed at ourselves. We're upset that we make mistakes when we book travel. You know, we get things wrong. Because, you know, more and more corporations are driving everything to be automated and you just fill fill out the form online. I think that's, that's a really disturbing trend because people still need the human touch. Yeah, A lot of us are not comfortable booking online, and when we do, we make mistakes, and then when we make mistakes, there's usually no way of undoing the mistakes because the purchase is non-refundable. Now, fortunately, there are some new laws that have kind of taken effect. Uh, the Department of Transportation has a 24-hour cancellation rule, for example. So if you screw up on your, your reservation, mm-hmm. you can. Hotels, not yet. Cruises, not yet. But, you know, we're we're getting there. I like that. When you are venturing to book something complicated online, they let you review it before you click, yes, this is all good. That's a really good tip, actually. It's It seems really obvious, but most people, they'll just look at the date and mm-hmm. then they'll just move on. Yeah, and there's no. all these, these screens upon screens. Of and then you don't print. realize the problem until you go to the airline or until you turn up for the cruise. Well, that's, that's the other problem is is people who are not looking at the reservation that's been sent to them by email, they're saying, hey, it's fine, I'll look, I'll look at it the day before the trip. They don't realize that maybe their reservation was for the wrong day, and uh, there goes their entire vacation. You need to have a discipline. No matter how your eyes glaze over, go through that printout or whatever, line by line, and make sure it's right. Now, you mentioned uh, a human touch is a good thing, unless you're dealing with the TSA. <laughs> 
What's your, what's your take on the TSA and getting through the, the airport? The TSA and I, we go way back. I think that they're trying. I'm going to give them credit for that. That's what I get. I mean, they're hired to do a job. Yeah, it's not, they're right. just looking for work. I, I just think it must be one of the most boring things on earth. And uh, I just remind myself, just hold your tongue and don't get yourself in trouble. Right. But this full body scanner is, is sort of a thing that I'm, I'm just really, I have a problem with it. Uh, and me too. I make a point not to go through it. I've gone through it about twice in my life. I've gone through one time and that was it. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. I'm troubled by that. It's part of that security circus that I talk about a lot in, in my columns is, is just that they, they're trying to put a, a good show on for us. But, you know, each of these full body scanners, is they're expensive. They're a couple yes. hundred thousand dollars. So it's a pretty expensive show that they're putting on for us. But I'm concerned on a variety of levels. I think the health thing, the, the thing is, is, is that they haven't really, in my view, haven't been adequately tested. So we don't know if whatever it is they're beaming us with is perfectly safe. So if they don't allow for independent testing, then, you know, how do you, what are we going to just take their word for it? They don't allow for independent testing. They say we've checked it and we think it's safe. They haven't really fully released, as far as I know, they haven't, they have not released, to the satisfaction of critics, have not right. released okay. a machine for people to, to really study. Now, when I opt out, and I always do, I just say I'd like to opt out. And that's all you got to do. And yeah. they're always, a lot of times they'll make you wait just to kind of. It's the, the punitive wait. The punitive they? wait. And I just <laughs> right. sit there and it's just, but I do that. But. I'm surprised they give you that option. Why, why can't they just say you have to do it? Well, if you have pre-check, you don't have to go through that, that whole process, which is another issue that I have with the TSA is that you ha- they're forcing you now to pay money for something that should be included because everyone is paying taxes. And that's really how this is being funded is through our taxes and through ticket taxes and everything now, like pre-check, that. Now, pre-check, it takes a, a few hoops to go through to get that. You do. You have to make a special appointment and go down and they ask you a lot of questions. Background search. They want to make sure that you really are going to be a safe traveler. And then you save uh, average 10 minutes of flight by going through fast. Yeah, and see, over the summer, for the last year or so, they've been doing something called managed inclusion, which means that they'll just wave you through the pre-check line randomly. So everybody gets pre-checked. They have a little just... little device called a randomizer right. and it'll tell you who gets to go through and they're trying to sell pre-check. Oh, is that what they're doing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I just thought they'd look on the There's a lot of people here. Let's just get a lot of them through in a hurry. No, they're doing it. They're doing it randomly. To sell and, pre-check and because they make money on it. It's a, it's a revenue source. Absolutely. Well, they're, they're trying to sell pre-check. They want everyone to have these background well, checks. I, I'm, I've been lazy, but I want to do it because it's a beautiful thing not to be able to leave your, leave your stuff on and leave your stuff in the bag and just yep. go through without that full body scanner. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Elliott. His book is called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. Chris, travel insurance is a big deal for me, for a lot of travelers, and it's a little confusing. First of all, there's a lot of different kinds of travel insurance. There's health, there's trip interruption cancellation, there's baggage. The one that really matters most is interruption and cancellation, isn't it? Isn't that far and away the, what they, when people refer to travel insurance, what they're talking about? That's right. That's exactly right. People are afraid that something is going to happen while they're on the road and that that will then effectively end their vacation. They want to figure out some way of compensating or getting some of that money back. So very briefly, you can insure your baggage if you're going to lose it or something like yes. that. And that's, I understand, one of the worst values statistically among insurance, but some people want to insure that. Uh, you can get your health insurance, but you might have it already and not know that. So you should look into your health insurance, see how it covers you on the road. And then what we're talking about is interruption and cancellation insurance. And that only comes into play if you're buying stuff that is expensive to change or cancel. 
Trip insurance is not for everyone, but the times when it really comes in handy are when something catastrophic happens. Someone dies. You need uh, repatriation of remains, which can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's an air ambulance that you have to use, that kind of thing. You know, or if it, you get injured and have to fly home and take three seats in first class. Absolutely. That, yeah, that too. That's the thing is that you're, you're really, it's a gamble. If you buy a plane ticket, if you buy a cruise, if you buy a tour, all of that stuff is really expensive to cancel once you're on board. It is. Your airfare, you're not going to ever get that back probably. But can't you buy insurance for that? You can. Well, if you're booking the airfare separately, you can get insurance. Usually your airline will offer that as an, an optional add-on. So generally, you can buy away the risk that comes with canceling or changing something with a legitimate reason just before or just partially into it and get a fair reimbursement. And sometimes you can pay more and not even have to have a legitimate reason. You know, a big concern is over-insurance. Your travel agent or maybe your, your online travel site will say, you know, you're not protected. Get peace of mind when you already are protected. Maybe you've Maybe you've used a credit card that allows you to get some insurance and you just, you're just not aware of it. So we should remind people that people who sell you stuff, mm -hmm. they accomplish two things when they scare you into buying insurance. They make sure that you're covered if you have a gripe with them, so they're less likely to have to deal with you because they're not taking your money. They're getting money from essentially from the insurance company. And secondly, they're making a big commission on that insurance they're, they're having you buy because their little serial number is on your application for the insurance. Absolutely. And it's a considerable commission. We're talking about 30, 40 percent or more. It's obscene. <laughs> it's ridiculous. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking consumer advocacy with Christopher Elliott. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And William's calling in from Miami in Florida. William, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, guys. How you doing? Doing good. Do you have hey. a question or a comment for uh, Christopher? Yes, I do. Chris, I'm a really big fan. I read the uh, forum every day, and I've learned so mu much, you know, about you just have to be careful, you know, when you're buying anything and they're, you know, reading anything, you know, you have to read the fine print and everything, especially on the insurance. But I've noticed that most of the commentaries, you know, that the people make, uh, you know, on the problems that people have, that uh, they have absolutely no mercy on the people who buy the non-refundable tickets and don't buy travel insurance, you know. Mm -hmm. And but I've seen quite a few of the people that do buy the insurance have problems also. Mm -hmm. That's got to be really, really, a, really stick in your craw that uh, you buy the insurance and then the then you get uh, stonewalled when it comes to paying. Yeah, you're so right. It's, a, making a claim on it. It's a it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And uh, I, I totally understand how, how you feel. How so? Explain that again. Well, huh? damned if you do, meaning is, that if you buy the insurance, you may have to file a claim that is not honored or is, is not processed by huh. our insurance company. So we have quite a few cases like that really? where, well, it, it's, because it's, it's, a, it's insurance with limits. It's the most common type of travel insurance is the named exclusion policy. And as it says, they're named exclusions. So if your best friend dies, you might not be covered. You ha so it has to be a relative. So that's one of the named exclusions. So you may cancel your trip to go to your best friend's funeral, but your travel insurance is not going to cover you. And that, that's really So that's you a need to one. read the fine print on that stuff. Well, you can read it, but if something happens, you're still... It's, you're not insured. You're not insured. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the, the, the damn... But you could buy more expensive insurance that's not that itemized. cancel for any reason, which is, you know, as you know, much more expensive. It's right. usually 10 to 12% of the cost of your trip. As opposed to 5 or 6 or 7 or something. Right, exactly. And then if you don't buy the insurance, you, of course, as you point out in our forums, 
no, no mercy for uh, someone who doesn't buy insurance. And I wanted to actually mention something about that because our forums, and you can reach those by going to elliot.org forward slash forum, just singular. We have some characters in there who, are, who work in the travel industry. They really want to help, but they also have a point of view. And you have to understand that these people are, they probably sell insurance for a living and they obviously want everyone else to buy their insurance. So that's their perspective. Hey, William, thanks for your call. Okay, you guys have a good one. Bye. Bye now. Christopher Elliott is helping us to be smart travelers right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Chris writes a weekly consumer travel column for the Washington Post, USA Today, the Huffington Post, and in many local newspapers. Chris also troubleshoots and helps resolve the complaints of fellow travelers in his consumer advocacy blog, which you can find on his website at elliot.org. His book is called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler and Save Time, Money, and Hassle. It's published by National Geographic. Ed's calling in from Chino Hills in California. Ed, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you very much, Rick, and hello, Chris. Hey, since you are the world's smartest traveler... What apps do you use, and Rick, this is for you too, what apps do you use that you find invaluable for traveling? All right, Chris, what apps uh, would we find with you when you're on the uh, road? Okay, first of all, I did not come up with the name of my book, so I don't, the I don't call myself the world. He's wearing a t-shirt right now. It says, <laughs> Christopher Elliott, I'm the smartest traveler. The world. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's really a good question, though, Rick. What do you, what do you use? I don't you, use you that have, many apps. You have apps. I have an app. I use do. my own app you all the time. You use your own app. Yeah. I use yeah, I like my, my app is just a collection of our favorite interviews that are in country-specific playlists. So I was just in um, England, uh, faced with a five-hour drive across South England. I just uh, went to my app, and I pulled down three hours of great interviews and got to listen to stuff like uh, what we're talking about with Christopher here all day long as I drove. I like that. I I like the mapping you know, apps. The, just drop a pin, and you get help getting there. I'm going to agree. Now, this is not a cop-out answer, but I'm going to agree with Rick that the direction-finding apps are probably the most useful ways, for example. I get people talking to me about that app all the time and recommending it because it's just, you know, crowdsourcing plus directions is just awesome. And that's an interesting issue here also, Ed and and Christopher, the um, crowdsourcing. Uh, This has been the most radical change for travelers, at least in my beat, Europe, is all of these... uh, cruisecritic.com and Yelp and uh, TripAdvisor and all this kind of thing. Uh, what's your take on, on TripAdvisor, for instance, Christopher? That's the first chapter of my book on how to be the world's smartest traveler is on crowdsourcing incredible sources. You know, there's so many sources now online that claim to be authoritative. And, you know, I'm, I don't want to really take a swipe at TripAdvisor, but you asked me, so here, here goes. The problem with TripAdvisor is that they don't verify their reviews. We don't know who these people are. They could be anyone. They do have an algorithm that tries to ferret out the fakes. doesn't always work. So you could end up with a competitor basically doing a, a review oh, of this, that hotel. I know from my own yeah. experience, small hotels all over Europe are, are hiring companies in yeah. India just to put a, a, a comments in TripAdvisor in their favor. They, they pay yeah. these companies uh, in Asia to do that. Uh, there's also restaurants and hoteliers that are bribing people with all sorts of free extras if yep. they'll put in the uh, comments. And then you meet these travelers that just brag that I'm doing the whole trip based on TripAdvisor. You know, and who are these people that are assessing the restaurants there? A lot of them are one-time travelers, and they go to Paris, and they love the Tex-Mex. You know, and it's just they write about that. And I find TripAdvisor is a great, uh, great uh, source of data. I mean, I like to go through just to see what's out there. 
But the assessment of all these things, you know, it's, it's worth looking at, but I certainly wouldn't base my whole trip on it blindly like a lot of people do because, as Christopher said, it's hard to know how many of these comments are either plants in favor or enemies that are, have an agenda. TripAdvisor is another data point like Cruise Critic. You, know, you, you want to use it, right. reference it, but cross-reference it with other very authoritative sources, your travel agent, a guidebook, you know, one of like your guidebooks. Yeah, there's guidebooks that work, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in the last 20 years, the, the change has been there's so much data out there now, and part of my job as a guidebook writer is to sort through it all, not to provide more, but to distill it down. And it's you got to know what curates your information. That's really important these days. You know, and one of the worst things that I've seen in my advocacy practice is people who are, I call them the trip advisor vultures. They show up and they tell everyone that they are going to write up a review for TripAdvisor and hoping that they're going to get favorable oh. treatment while they're, while they're there. Using it as an excursion. Yeah. I, I was in a restaurant in yes. Wales just a couple of weeks ago, and the people stood up and, and they went out in a, in a huff and they said, we're going to write about you on TripAdvisor, and that's going to ruin your little restaurant. I mean, as if yep. that, that really matters. Yeah, they do it all the time at restaurants, at hotels. Uh, you hear about it a lot, unfortunately. Ed, thanks for your call. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Elliott. He's a consumer advocate columnist. Christopher, ATMs to me are just too good to be true. I grew up on traveler's checks. I've never had a problem with an ATM machine. It's never eaten my card. I always feel like I get a fair exchange rate. How am I naive? I don't think you are at all. It's just amazing, isn't it? No, no. I mean, if you need cash, an ATM is usually the best place to go. Banks have banker hours, so you know you if you have a card that works. Now, here's the thing, though, is that you don't know if your card is going to work or not. And we've run into this issue in Europe all the time, is not knowing if your card is part of the right network and is it going to accept it? Does it have the right chip? You and know, if it doesn't it, accept it, you just go to another go ATM. Go to the next one, exactly. It's just, that's part of good travel, I think. If I was going to write a one-paragraph uh, book called uh, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler, if something's not to your liking, change your liking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, go to the next machine because uh, yep. that you take these little bumps. But nowadays we've got this issue that American uh, credit cards, a lot of them the old-fashioned magnetic strip. Yep. And in Europe they're going to the computer chip. Yep. Uh, what's the downside if you go to Europe now with a magnetic strip? Your card probably won't work everywhere. This is also true for Canada, by the way, if you don't mm-hmm. have the, the chip on your card. Mm-hmm. They're all moving much faster than we are here in the States to the, the chip system which is more yeah. secure. And it's just more advanced. I, I mean, is. and I, at first our banks were kind of belligerent, but now they're, they're getting the message, aren't they? Because yeah, it costs more. You know, they don't want to yeah. spend that extra money. But I think within, right now we have interim cards that have both. The chip and swipe, right. You can ask your bank for one. And that would be my advice is ask your bank. Before if, you go. Before you go. And they can often get it to you quite quickly. I've, I've had the, my advice. bank got me one in about three days. Nice. Hey, it's been good talking to you, Christopher. Likewise. And uh, good luck with your work. Once again, we're talking with Christopher Elliott. His website is Elliot.org, and his book is How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. Happy travels. Thank you. Amour fou des aventures, vivre à toute allure, comment peut-on les réunir? Destins et désirs, je veux tout et je ne veux rien. J'ai pris tant de chemins, on dirait que celui-là me conduit jusqu'à toi. You can also listen to our earlier interviews with Christopher Elliott in the Travel with Rick Steves show archives. You'll find it in our website at ricksteves.com radio. Look for these interviews in January and May of 2016. 
Next, Patricia Schultz of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die is back with us. The domestic offshoot of her bestseller is just updated in its third edition. Her first book listed a bit over 100 places in North America, and now she's expanded her domestic options to a thousand places to see before you die in the United States and Canada. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. If this land is your land, then maybe it's time to rediscover your own backyard. And if your last road trip was as a youngster in the back of the family station wagon, then I'd suggest it's time to see for yourself the variety of great experiences you can have virtually anywhere in North America. And this year, we have the added bonus of celebrating the 150th birthday of Canada. The inspiration you need for finding your own favorite places is likely to be found in Patricia Schultz's latest book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die in the U.S. and Canada. It's just been revised in its third edition. Patricia, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. In your latest book, you opened with a quote by G.K. Chesterton. I want to read the quote, and uh, it just really is a great way to start the book. The whole object of travel is not to set foot in a foreign land. It is at last to set foot in one's own country as a foreign land. That's a a great way to to start a book about traveling in your own country. Uh, Why does that resonate with you? I think to open your eyes and your head with the same awe and awareness that you feel when you're removed from the comfort bubble of your own town or country or comfort zone. Uh, The first way you felt when, you know, you arrive in Asia or the first time maybe in your 20s when you're backpacking through Europe, to feel that all of your senses are Mm -hmm. on, you know, in high mode and Everything is unique and everything is new and it's a kind of wow moment time Mm -hmm. and again. And to not just feel like it's a rather ho-hum, okay, let's do, you know, let's get the kids in the car. No, I mean, it really should be seen for as the same way that, you know, that Japanese family that's come from the other side of the globe is experiencing one of our national parks the same way that you are, you know, with that same appreciation that here is truly something um, remarkable. You've authored A Thousand Places to See Before You Die and A Thousand Places to See in United States and Canada Before You Die. A lot of people might say, There's a big difference between seeing and really experiencing. I mean, of course, there's more to travel than having a bucket list and checking things off. What are your words of caution for for people who have a long list of things to see? Um, I think that my suggestions are probably what anyone would um, offer, and that is to not rush, to be in the moment, to really, you know, absorb, to um, immerse yourself to not worry about the whole bragging rights, kind of ticking it off that sometimes notorious bucket list when, in fact, that is the only thing that's driving you to see all of these wonders, whether in North America or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that word appreciation comes back time and again because it, it does have you stop and think and 
ponder and explore how did it get here? What's its history? What is the heritage mm-hmm. behind this? Who built it? Why is it in our textbooks? Why has it been overlooked? Why am I the only one here? Mm-hmm. Or why am I one of <laughs> legions? Because, right. you know, all of these great iconic places often will, um, you know, if you think you're going to be the only one on Ellis Island, then <laughs> you should stay home. So, um, but just an appreciation for everything that's in this book. And, you know, are these the only thousand places to see, whether in the World Book or the USA and Canada book? That's almost laughable because, um, you know, the more you travel, the more you understand that it's often all the stuff you stumble upon along the way. I always have a longer list of things I want to see when I come home from a trip than when I left, because as soon as you turn one corner, you find, oh, there's more. You've got a lot of new places listed in your Canada and the United States book, and you wrote that you were pleasantly surprised in particular by a couple of places, uh, the Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Lewiston, Montana. It's so reflective of that area of the world, of the, the U.S., And it's a gathering of cowboys and would-be cowboys, cowboy wannabes. I mean, the audience it attracts is often as interesting as the (laughs) event itself. And there are a lot of these festivals that happen annually that are sometimes off the radar and sometimes deservingly on the radar because they are so unique and they are so endemic Mm -hmm. almost to that particular area. And, you know, for an East Coaster or, a you know, cosmopolitan big city gal, this whole cowboy thing that it even still exists in America and is not something relegated to, you know, the old right. John Wayne movies fascinates me. And there, you know, it's not just for tourism purposes. It's very much heartfelt and it's very much authentic. I hate to use that word, but it's just so appropriate here. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz. Her book is, uh, well, she's written A Thousand Places to See Before You Die and also A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kay's calling in from Folsom in California. Kay, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick and Patricia. Yeah. Hi there. I, uh, I have a, a specific question for you, Patricia. I find that as I travel over the years and find places that I just love, I'm always in a quandary about... Do I go to those so many places on my bucket list that I haven't been to yet? Or do I go back to places that I've loved that I'd like to explore a little bit more and and find out more about, go a little bit deeper under the surface? How do you make that decision? That's a really tough one and so pertinent because when you talk about books of this size that, you know, kind of open up the realization that the possibilities are legion and countless, It gives me, to be quite honest, a sense of anxiety because I so want to see it all. And I'm just so aware that time is precious, not just because there's no guarantee that we're going to be here, not even tomorrow, but, you know, tonight, this afternoon, five minutes from now. But also because if, you know, you're most of America that's working from Monday to Friday, and in my case, you know, eight days a week, You just don't have that luxury of time. So you do need to be selective and you do need to be careful. And I guess it depends on your character and how what you enjoy most, because that's a kind of slow travel where you go and you really delve into beyond what is obvious for the immediate drive by tourists to see. But I am quite different in my my own personality is kind of you hit the ground running and you don't stop until you're back in the car, back in your your seat on the plane. 
So I guess it depends on, you know, how you what you enjoy most, because it is vacation. It is your special time to take a break from, you know, the tribulations and the reality of the same old, same old to, you know, break away and get out there and explore and see and do. And how you best enjoy it is only really for you to answer. So good luck. I probably haven't answered your question at all. You know, one thing I find is very important, Kay, is to recognize that, you know, we Americans are, have about the shortest vacations in the rich world, and it's really important to recognize you can't see it all on a, any particular trip, and we shouldn't try to. We should be thankful that we'll always go home wishing we could have seen more because it gives us more things to dream about and do on our next trip. So, Kay, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, Patricia, one thing you uh, also were pleasantly surprised by in your new edition was the Dallas State Fair. Tell us about that. Oh, I'm a sucker for a great state fair, and they certainly know how to throw a state fair. It's everything on a stick. It's great people watching, great for families, two, three generations, a lot of cowboy hats, a lot of big Mm -hmm. eating going on, great, you know, star-studded concerts and music venues and line dance. It's just so wonderfully, it's like everything you ever wanted to experience about Texas and Mm -hmm. one visit to the state. And also, uh, you know, your book is United States and Canada. You mentioned uh, seeing polar bears in Churchill, Manitoba. What was that like? Oh, that's remarkable. And also Canada in 2017. I hope that in the U.S. we come to understand that there's lots going on because it's their 150th anniversary. So, for example, all of their national parks are free And you can really save a lot of money. Mm. And what an incentive to see some of their parks that are every bit as beautiful as our most beautiful. The polar bears are way up north of Manitoba. And Manitoba Mm -hmm. is one of um, their provinces that doesn't get a phenomenal amount of tourism. It shares a border with partially with North Dakota. But if you go north to Hudson Bay... In September, October, when hundreds of polar bears wander down to the coastline, mm. waiting for the ice flows to form so they can go off to sea and mm. eat, uh, you'll see them on shore, and it's pretty spectacular. And there are northern lights if you go in October, so it's like a double whammy. What's your favorite bit in the far east of Canada, the Maritimes and so on? I love those Maritime provinces. They're pretty spectacular. There is Prince Edward Island. To me, probably Cape Breton Island, part of Nova Scotia, with that wonderful classic drive, the John Cabot Drive, I believe, along the coastline, and a lot of old Scottish-Irish heritage festivals, music. And it looks very much like the old country. Mm -hmm. I can see when the Scots and the Irish arrived, they Mm -hmm. felt quite at home and probably still do to this day. Newfoundland also is really kind of on the radar in the last year or three or five. Rachel from Davis, California is on the line with a comment about Canadian travel. Rachel, thanks for your call. Yes, yes. yes. I was uh, asking a question about the best time to travel in Canada with the Rocky Mountain train. Oh, it's beautiful in the autumn time, as you can imagine. And they actually are seasonal, so they will determine just when you travel. Um, they have select departures in the winter months in December, January, when it's beautiful to see the Rockies covered by snow. In fact, that's when I went with VIA, which is the National Railroad. But they don't run year-round. Uh, they're popular, of course, in the summertime as well. I would say in the autumn time. But it's also the most popular, probably, because the, the departures are limited. So you'd need to book way in advance. But you can imagine the beauty 
in the autumn time, except that the Rockies are a lot of um, evergreens and conifers so that not everything changes color as you would expect, but it is still warmer weather and it is still beautiful, I think. The Rocky Mountain area in Alberta and British Columbia and Canada is um, just second to none. So is this a train that's like a, a tour train or is it just a regular transportation train? No, no, it's for tourism exclusively, and they have glass-domed cars, and you eat on board in the evening. They escort you to a hotel, and they're usually short-range, like one or two nights only. Mm. Um, I think they're a few longer, but you don't sleep on the train because they don't have the facilities. That sounds like... I, oh, I, I just see. love so. I love Banff and Jasper. Thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Rachel. Patricia, is is there one place in particular that has impacted your personal feelings about our environment? That's a very good question. I, I suppose that what we were just talking about, you know, the Arctic, and we, you know, travel in general wherever you go in the world and at whatever time is such an education. I like to call it, you know, the classroom without walls. And what I learned about climate change um, that is so visible and so immediately in your face obvious when you travel to the northern latitudes, um, seeing what were in some cases skeletal polar bears because their habitat is changing so Mm. radically and so quickly. So all throughout the Arctic, I think that's immediately noticeable and very much like heart penetrating because you can Mm. see it there everywhere. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz about uh, her thoughts after updating her book, A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Patricia, as you travel around the United States, tell me a place or two where you really enjoy the history. Where does the history really become vivid for you? Oh, to me, I think there's... Truly, without exception, I exaggerate night. I think that New Orleans is our most un-American and yet quintessentially American city that just oozes with mm. history. I think that Chicago is architecturally and visually a magnificent city. I just took an architecture tour of this of the skyline <gasps> Aren't they fascinating? of Chicago. It's wonderful, and I took yeah. a Segway tour all along the the lakefront in Chicago and. What a, just physically a brilliant city. Also, where do you get a a general appreciation for the brilliance of our founding fathers? Well, Philadelphia to me, I took, talking of tours, I took a walking tour and I kind of (laughs) realized for not the first time that I must have slept through American history in school because (laughs) what I learned in those two hours, the guy just couldn't talk fast enough. It's great to go back as an adult when you're really an eager student <laughs> yes. and you realize this is worth knowing. And Philadelphia would be the place then. Um, where, where do you get an appreciation of the, the tragedy of the Civil War? You know, for one recent July 4th weekend, we decided at the last minute to drive, which is not difficult from New York, to drive to Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. And I thought it would be kind of staged and, you know, a little uncomfortably hokey, but It was brilliantly done, Mm. and the Civil War buffs who come from all over America to reenact the battle, it was the single bloodiest battle in the Civil War. Everybody dresses in costume in in Civil War era wear, Mm -hmm. and we did a tour with one of the National Park Rangers. It's one of our great military battlefield national parks. 
fascinating to me. And again, when you learn it in the three-dimensional, in the, you know, when you go back as an adult and you, you learn because you want to and not because you have mm-hmm. to, and you're not learning it from a dusty old um, textbook, but from the actual mm-hmm. in-situ place, I think that's a remarkable place for all generations and a great family destination to bring the kids and have them learn and have them appreciate. In my travels lately, I've noticed how there's a lot of great cities that have had neighborhoods that were run down and dangerous, and now they're gentrified and vibrant. And uh, I was just in Boston, and there's whole areas now that are just lively that used to be no-go zones, the same thing in other cities. What You've been at this for a long time now with your thousand places to see before you die. What is your observation of the, the city core, urban America? Do you see it changing in, in the last 15, 10, 15 years that you've been working? What are some examples? You know, the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about different neighborhoods, et cetera, was Detroit. I went, well, the first time in an awfully long time, about two or three years ago, with one of the born and raised old school Detroiters who refuses to leave and is very much involved in this grassroots kind of derelict house by derelict house. I'm attempting to save or salvage what once was a magnificent city because incredible museums and incredible history and the outlying areas, you know, have stayed pretty much intact. But how they're trying to resuscitate this city that's at the edge of, you know, destitution. In New York City, for example, you don't need to go very far. The new place now is Queens because Brooklyn has become so regentrified that it's now more Mm -hmm. expensive to live in certain areas of Brooklyn than it is in in midtown Manhattan. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz about her the new edition of her book, A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. I noticed uh, Charleston, South Carolina, has like six entries in your book. Talk a little bit about Charleston or, or some other small town that really has that delightful old world charm. Well, Charleston, while it really exudes that smaller city ambiance character, is quite a large city and quite a thrumming city and was very, very important to America in the early years. And all of our plantation and agricultural wealth in the plantations outside of downtown Charleston fed that city with incredible money and coffers that built antebellum architecture that Mm. is there and preserved. And you can stay overnight in these inns or they house perhaps the earliest museum from the 1800s in Charleston as well. And restaurants, what an incredible eating scene as well. And just delightful and beautiful, but I would not go there in July and August because it's like 100,000 degrees Mm -hmm. on a cool day. But in the springtime, it's magnolias and azaleas, and they open a lot of these private antebellum homes, which sometimes are in the same family generations and generations later. And they open them in the springtime to the public and in the autumn time to Mm. the public. And their gardens, their private gardens as well. We can all put that on our list. Patricia Schultz. Thanks for all your work and best wishes with the new edition of A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Happy travels. Thank you very much, Rick. Same to you. All right. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. 
Find out how you can talk to Rick's tour guide friends from Europe and beyond an upcoming edition of the show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.